Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Hope you're doing all right. It is Friday, so we're going to be doing a flashback episode today. I will be sharing with you an outtake from episode 268, my conversation with author Douglas Copeland. It first aired on April 13th, 2014. Douglas Copeland is the author of 13 novels, including Generation X, Microsurfs, Player One, and Worst Person Ever. He has written and performed for England's Royal Shakespeare Company, and he is a columnist for the Financial Times of London and a frequent contributor to the New York Times and Vice. An outtake from my conversation with Douglas Copeland is coming up in just a bit. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you would like to receive my email newsletter, it goes out once a week. You can subscribe over at Substack. The newsletter lives at Substack. I will let you know about the latest episodes of the program. I also share a list of links to things that I have been reading and finding interesting on a weekly basis. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, head on over to Substack and subscribe to my newsletter. Likewise, you can join the Other People Patreon community. Help keep this show going into the future over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription, and so on and so forth over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay, so today I will be sharing an outtake from episode 268, my conversation with Douglas Copeland. 
Again, it first aired on April 13th, 2014. A reminder that the full episode is available in the feed, as are all episodes. So if you like what you hear in this outtake and you want to hear the full talk, just look for episode 268 in the feed. All right. Okay, let's do this. Here I am talking with Douglas Copeland. I'm in bed because last night I had incredible insomnia and I couldn't sleep until around 5, 5.30. So I took a sleeping pill, which I use very, very judiciously. And it was a really hard wake up. So I'm, I'm awake now, but like I feel lost in time and space, sort of. Yeah, I was. Uh, I have uh, insomnia problems sometimes. I couldn't sleep very well last night either. And I'm curious, like, what was it that was keeping you up? Was it something specific, or was it just general malaise? Or <laughs> oh, there's just too much going on in my head right now. Uh, I sort of I call it planning head, where you know I, I've got staff I have to work with. I've got two trips I have to make things I forgot to do and oh, 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 and just, oh, that. And before you know it, you're not, you're not sleeping. But you, and you're, but you're a very busy, uh, person. I've like, I've been reading about your like work ethic and all the different things that you do creatively. Like you're not somebody who really stops. You're, you're not prone to taking vacations or to giving yourself days off. Like, do you think that's part of it? I don't know. I mean, I, I think my, my issue with vacations is that it implies that your your real life is something that needs taking a vacation from. And so, I mean, I, I, I build my days so that every day is a Thursday. That's the best day of the week. And, um, and on like the worst time of the year is Christmas over the last week of the year when it's very, very hard to pretend that everything is a Thursday in the middle of a regular working week. Why do you think Thursday is the best day of the week? Well, okay. Well, Monday just blows. Two is like, still the rest of the week to go. <laughs> Wednesday is like, oh, halfway. But Thursday, everyone's okay. Everyone knows that they could well be bailing on Friday. And, and, but it's not quite, you're not desperate for the weekend. Uh, I get the most emails on Thursday afternoon for some reason. And, uh, it's just a very, very productive time. I like that. And the lowest email volume of the week is Saturday mornings, Saturday early afternoon. My, what's your busiest email uh, day of the week? You know, I don't. I, I guess it would probably be sometime in the middle of the week. And I, I was thinking about what you were saying about Thursday, and it's like uh, I feel like I feel like I sort of understand that from the from the perspective of anticipation. Like I've always been a person who likes Christmas Eve better than Christmas Day or New Year's Eve better than New Year's Day. Oh. <laughs> Thursday seems to hold some sort of promise to it. You know, it's like you're you're still in it, so you're still being productive and getting things done. But there is some sort of promise of like the end of the grind or you know the the promise of the weekend or whatever. No, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, it was. Someone's, we're talking about this. Why are there seven days of the week? At one point, the Americans were going to go metric, and they actually toyed with the idea of a 10-day week, and it was just like blown to bits by every single person. And how did we end up at seven days a week? Shouldn't it be like eight? I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, I guess it's kind of an arbitrary. I mean, is it an arbitrary decision? I feel like you would know more about these kinds of things than I would. I've never thought about it that deeply. But why do we have a seven-day week? It's probably the optimum number for capitalism. Yeah, just like having the well, I mean, the, but the, did we always have? I don't even know if we always had the weekend. It was like we had Sunday off because of some sort of biblical concern, but then 
everybody worked six and then eventually like workers rights, uh, you know, they fought for those and got the extra day. Is that how it worked? Well, I, I think in years ago, there must've been sort of a Mr. Burns from the Simpsons, like person who experimented on living human beings on how many days of the week were needed. And he's like, Hmm, excellent. <laughs> how many can they take, you know, before they completely crumble? Before they implode. <laughs> so, uh, like, how do you work? You know, you're, you're living up in Canada, uh, outside of Vancouver, so you're in I, in like a. It's 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 it, it kind of maps onto the Bay Area. If if you think of Vancouver as San Francisco, I'd be over in the Berkeley area across the bridge on the mountain. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, like, what's your ritual? Uh, like like last night's bout with insomnia notwithstanding, are you a morning rider or? Oh, uh, I'm 52. Until about 42, I was uh, a late night rider, and I loved it. And every writer older than myself said, like, oh, don't worry, you'll become a morning writer. And I said, oh, like hell I will. And and then one day it happened. Uh, I find that wake up, bit of news, yogurt, and you've got maybe 90, 120 minutes where your brain is fresh. We're actually going to be creative or create something. And then that ends and, well, there's the rest of the day, so you've got to do something else. So you go do something else. But your brain, of course, is churning away on what you did in the morning. And then late in the afternoon, you can go and edit what you did. And then before bed, you do one final to clean up and edit. But, but anything creative has to take place in the morning. Okay, so you mentioned – and I think like there's a – you know, I've talked about this with writers on this show before. There's a similarity between late at night and early in the morning, namely that there's not a lot of distraction. It's quieter. You know, the brain finds a way to quiet down either by – virtue of sleep or by virtue of um, just uh, the stillness of late night. But when you say a bit of news, because this is a problem for me, <laughs> uh, is that it's hard for me to kind of temper that and keep some sort of constraint on how much news I ingest. Like, do you read the paper in the morning? Do you just like sweep through a couple of websites just to get your... Oh, oh Brad, I mean, a week ago, I just shipped up something to someone. Do we have any newspaper? And I realized that we haven't had a newspaper here in about two and a half years. And so I had to go up to the studio and find some old crumpled up newspaper that came in an, e in an eBay purchase and use that to pack it. So I don't read newspaper paper. I read, it's kind of horrifying. I start with the, the Daily Mail out of England. And because it's just like a, a big, noisy, sensationalist paper. And then I go to the Globe and Mail, which is Canada's national paper, and then to New York, New York Times. And I have this theory that if you read those three papers and the headlines are different in all three papers, then everything's all right with the world. And the, the days you want to watch out for are the ones when all those three papers have the exact same headline. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, I've heard, I've read you uh, in interviews before talking about a shift that you made at the age of 40, Yeah, uh, you know, where you felt like there, you know, you were not using your brain in, the way that you wished you were, or like you made some sort of pivotal shift. Like, can you talk about that period in your life? Mm. Uh, I'll confess to having a certain interest in this because I'm 38. So okay. I'm, I'm coming up on it. What, what, what should I, oh, be on, God, what, should, you know, what should I be looking out for? Well, at 40, I have this theory that men and women, doesn't matter who you are, where you are at 40, you're going to make two and a half really stupid decisions. Awesome. I don't know what they're going to be, but they will happen. So watch out. Uh, what happened at 40 was oh boy uh, since I began working with long form fiction 
uh, I've always been doing interviews where the interviewer says to me, you know, Doug, your, your writing is really visual. And I was never sure if that was a put down or a put up. And then began to read about brains and how we're built. And I realized what those people were really saying is really saying is Doug, I'm not a visual thinker and you are, and you write like a visual thinker. So when I read it, I don't have the necessary cues that I need to go through a book. And when I say visual thinker, like I can say to you, okay, Brad, pretend Hitler is sitting across from you and he's eating spaghetti and you can probably see him in your head uh, because you're a visual thinker. But I'd say like half, half of humanity, I think it's biologically distributed randomly can look at an empty chair and they'll never be able to visualize Hitler eating spaghetti or, you know, an ostrich wearing a tutu. They need to be told what they're seeing and then they need to be told how they feel about what they see, which is sort of, it goes against a thing you're taught in school. Like, you know, show, don't tell. I think you actually have to show and tell, but, you know, Brad saw Hitler eating spaghetti across the table and he was very afraid and that actually, if you look at the literary world, it's especially in academia, it's loaded with non-visual thinkers who went there precisely because they don't have to deal, want to have to deal with visual thinking. And, and I realized, you know, partially, you know, you're, you're not going to change your brain. They can't change their brains. And I looked at all the people who I get along with, and they're all usually painters or people in the visual world. And, that, so I decided, you know, that's a very good reason, you know, to change realms and go work in another realm. So that was back around 2000. So I began, I went to art school to begin with. So a decade late, I started doing a visual career. And uh, I mean, the other thing, too, is writing takes place in time and, and visual art takes place in space. You know, there are exceptions or hybrid forms like film but that's the way the nature of the brain and so when i was writing i'm always you know thinking about time and sequencing but when i make something physical it's all about that thing that's there in front of you which is i'm you know they, they're probably as far away the, those two cortices are as far away in your head as it's possible to be and uh i found that unless i wasn't truly happy until I started using both an equal amount of time. I think that was the ultimate reason. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now 
wherever you buy books. Okay, so but okay, so you, you and you mentioned this, but you were educated as a visual as a visual artist. Yeah, and I went to art school for eighty to eighty four. Okay, so and as a sculptor. Yeah. Okay, and then started publishing in the early nineties. Uh, Generation X came out in March nineteen ninety one. Okay, so what what prompted the shift for you? Like you go to art school, you're working as a visual artist. You were presumably doing some of that after graduation or at least making some sort of pursuit of that and then decided that you wanted to work both sides of your brain. You know, like what, uh, what prompted the beginning of Generation X? It's sort of one of those Lana Turner wearing a sweater, a sweater at Schwab's kind of story. Um, I was living in Tokyo when I was working as a designer uh, at, so I guess the equivalent of Condé Nast in magazine house in Tokyo. And uh, I sent the wife of a friend a postcard, uh, and I forgot about the postcard. And then uh, the summer came, and I had this really, really bad dermatological reaction to the, the sort of very sweaty uh, the climate there. And I had to come back to Vancouver, which is a terrific come down after the excitement of what I'd been doing. And but because uh, I was in my 20s. I had this thing called a protective clueless coding. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I'm horrified with hindsight. And the phone rang. And what happened was a magazine editor was at my friend's uh, place, read my postcard on the fridge, and said, oh, this guy should write for us. And Doug, he doesn't write. Sure he does. This is a great postcard. And so, ring, ring, hello. Uh, we'd like you to write for us. And I said, I think you got a wrong number. I don't write. No, sure you do. It's a great postcard. Well, it's your money. What magazine, so the, what magazine was this? It was like Vancouver. It's like a city magazine for Vancouver. Okay. At, at, at Zenith in terms of page count and ads and everything. And so, two days later, I was down in Los Angeles, and I was writing this article about this, you know, this art crook, uh, who originally comes from Vancouver and had a glamorous two days there, wrote it in three days and got this check for $3,500, which was holy moly. How, wow. Yeah. I, and that, and was, I, that would be great today. <laughs> I had fun and it was easy. Like, okay. So I, mean, I had a studio then and studio bills are expensive because uh, when you make something 3d, like it's a you multiply, what it costs to make a painting, you know, square it. And it, it, so I was there able very quickly to pay all my studio bills and get proper materials. And it was a nice relationship. But then after a year, I was like, well, if I'm going to write, I should probably be writing fiction because it seems like the most pure form of writing. And, and then I wrote X and, you know, and that struck a chord. And so I spent 10 years really developing writing the way I do. And then I just hit the wall. Like I've got, if I don't do visual, I'm going to freak out. So I stopped. Okay. So, so but like when you say you wrote X, I mean, you didn't, I mean, you apprenticed a little bit, I guess, as the, doing this magazine work, but had you made attempts at fiction before you sat down to write Generation X or was that kind of just your, your first go at it? I had done two pieces, which were sort of semi-fictionalizations of a real, of real life, but, no, but yeah, that was pretty much it. It was right out of the gate. It's like 
boom, that, that's what it wants to be and that's what it is. Do you think that you have a, a really strong innate talent for fiction writing? I have a talent for writing the way I write. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, hmm. I, 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 I only ask that because, you know, I, I feel like a lot of writers, it's like such a struggle to learn how to get to that point, but you seem to have found it early. Like, do you think that maybe that was uh, because you had already studied and worked as an artist, even if it was in a different medium, you think that that education and the work that you had done in design had prepared you to write fiction uh, in a way that maybe like a more traditional apprenticeship might prepare a writer? Oh, I, know, I know that most of the writers I've ever met who write for a living usually were doing something else up until the age of 30. And then they sort of fell into writing quite naturally. Did my art training help me? No. I think you go to art school to learn your sense of style or to learn who you are and to learn how to be more honest to yourself and your perceptions. I think that was very, very helpful. I, 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 the people who come out of literary programs, they harbor not misconceptions, but, uh, like, are you published yet? Right. Did you get published? Oh my God, it's published. And like, oh my God, like so-and-so got published. I'm so jealous and da, 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 da. When in fact, I've always come to the gate knowing that willing to write and people are just going to read it. I assume that. So uh, you might as well just get to the point. Well, and you don't, and you don't I mean working the way that you do with the discipline that you do, uh, you know, being a, a seven day a week worker, like you don't have any of the, or I'm, I'm assuming you don't have any of the neuroses that can fell other writers, you know, where they have trouble getting to the keyboard or to the, to the blank page or whatever. Like you just sit down and do it. Well, I mean, there's no way to do a, a, a book or long form fiction unless you have discipline and, you put yourself in a certain place every day to write and some days it's not going to happen and some days it's great, but you have to be absolutely meticulous in keeping that schedule going, you know, and, and it would, if I meet someone like when they're a writer, Oh, when do you write and say, Oh, when the spirit moves me out, you know, in my head, I'm like hack. <laughs> uh, Cause you just, it's discipline. I mean, I'm not patient, but I am disciplined. All right, everybody. There we go. That was, an outtake from episode 268, my conversation with Douglas Copeland. It first aired on April 13th, 2014. You can find Douglas Copeland on the internet at copeland.com. Don't forget that the full episode, episode 268, is available in the feed. So if you would like to listen to the full conversation, you can do that. Just look for episode 268. It is there. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube, follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Go subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Keep up with the show. Keep up with what I am reading and finding interesting over at Substack. It's, uh, it's easy. You'll hear from me once a week in your inbox. If you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. And if you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a quick favor, please rate and review this show wherever you listen. It helps the program find new listeners. If you want to get another People t-shirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. 
And finally, a quick plug for my latest novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So check it out if you want to read my book. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, coming up on Sunday, my guest will be Claudia Day. Her new novel is called Daughter. It is outstanding, available from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I had an excellent conversation with Claudia, and that is happening in like 48 hours, coming up on Sunday. Stay tuned.